Chapter 24, Part 1 of Struggles and Triumphs or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum. Written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary B. Clayton. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 24, Work and Play, Part 1. In the summer, I think, of 1853, I saw it announced in the newspapers that Mr. Alfred Bunn, the great ex-manager of Drury Lane Theatre in London, had arrived in Boston. Of course, I knew Mr. Bunn by reputation not only from his managerial career, but from the fact that he made the first engagement with Jenny Lynn to appear in London. This engagement, however, Mr. Lumley of Her Majesty's Theatre induced her to break, he standing a lawsuit with Mr. Bunn and paying heavy damages. I had never met Mr. Bunn, but he took it for granted that I had seen him, for one day after his arrival in this country, a burly Englishman abruptly stepped into my private office in the museum, and, assuming a theatrical attitude, addressed me, Barnum, do you remember me? I was confident I had never seen the man before, but it struck me at once that no Englishman I had ever heard of would be likely to exhibit more presumption or assumption than the ex-manager of Drury Lane and I jumped at the conclusion. Is this not Mr. Bunn? Ah, ah, my boy, he exclaimed, slapping me familiarly on the back. I thought you would remember me. Well, Barnum, how have you been since I last saw you? I replied in a manner that would humor his impression that we were old acquaintances, and during his two hours' visit we had much gossip about men and things in London. He called upon me several times, and it probably never entered into his mind that I could possibly have been in London two or three years without having made the personal acquaintance of so great a lion as Alfred Bunn. I met Mr. Bunn again in 1858 in London at a dinner party of a mutual friend, Mr. Levy, proprietor of the London Daily Telegraph. Of course, Bunn and I were great chums and very old and intimate acquaintances. At the same dinner, I met several literary and dramatic gentlemen. In 1851, 1852, and 1853, I spent much of my time at my beautiful home in Bridgeport, going very frequently to New York, to attend to matters in the museum, but remaining in the city only a day or two at a time. I resigned the office of president of the Fairfield County Agricultural Society in 1853, but the members accepted my resignation only on condition that it should not go into effect until after the fair of 1854. During my administration, the society held six fairs and cattle shows, four in Bridgeport and two in Stamford, and the interest in these gatherings increased from year to year. Pickpockets are always present at these country fairs, and every year there were loud complaints of the depredations of these operators. In 1853, a man was caught in the act of taking a pocketbook from a country farmer, nor was this farmer the only one who had suffered in the same way. The scamp was arrested and proved to be a celebrated English pickpocket. As the fair would close the next day, and as most persons had already visited it, we expected our receipts would be light. Early in the morning, the detective party was legally examined, pled guilty, and was bound over for trial. I obtained consent from the sheriff that the culprit should be put in the fair room for the purpose of giving those who had been robbed an opportunity to identify him. For this purpose he was handcuffed and placed in a conspicuous position, where, of course, he was, quote, the observed of all observers, end quote. 
I then issued handbills stating that as it was the last day of the fair, the managers were happy to announce that they had secured extra attractions for the occasion, and would accordingly exhibit, safely handcuffed and without extra charge, a live pickpocket who had been caught in the act of robbing an honest farmer the day previous. Crowds of people rushed in to see the show. Some good mothers brought their children ten miles for that purpose, and our treasury was materially benefited by the operation. At the close of my presidency in 1854, I was requested to deliver the opening speech at our county fair, which was held at Stamford. As I was not able to give agricultural advice, I delivered a portion of my lecture on the, quote, philosophy of humbug, end quote. The next morning, as I was being shaved in the village barber shop, which was at the time crowded with customers, the ticket seller to the fair came in. "'What kind of a house did you have last night?' asked one of the gentlemen in waiting. "'Oh, first rate, of course. Barnum always draws a crowd,' was the reply of the ticket seller, to whom I was not known. Most of the gentlemen present, however, knew me, and they found much difficulty in restraining their laughter. "'Did Barnum make a good speech?' I asked. I did not hear it. I was out in the ticket office. I guess it was pretty good, for I never heard so much laughing as there was all through his speech. But it makes no difference whether it was good or not, continued the ticket seller. The people will go to see Barnum. Barnum must be a curious chap, I remarked. Well, I guess he is up to all the dodges. Do you know him, I asked. Not personally, he replied, but I always get into the museum for nothing. I know the doorkeeper, and he slips me in for free. Barnum would not like that, probably, if he knew it, I remarked. But it happens he doesn't know it, replied the ticket seller, in great glee. Barnum was on the cars the other day on his way to Bridgeport, said I, and I heard one of the passengers blowing him up terribly as a humbug. He was addressing Barnum at the time, but did not know him. Barnum joined in lustily and endorsed everything the man said. When the passenger learned whom he had been addressing, I should think he must have felt rather flat. I should think so, too, said the ticket seller. This was too much, and we all indulged in a burst of laughter. Still, the ticket seller suspected nothing. After I had left the shop, the barber told him who I was. I called into the ticket office on business several times during the day, but the poor ticket seller kept his face turned from me, and appeared so chapfallen that I did not pretend to recognize him as the hero of the joke in the barber shop. This incident reminds me of numerous similar ones which have occurred at various times. On one occasion, it was 1847, I was on board the steamboat from New York to Bridgeport. As we approached the harbor of the latter city, a stranger desired me to point out, quote, Barnum's house, end quote, from the upper deck. I did so, whereupon a bystander remarked, I know all about that house, for I was engaged in painting there for several months while Barnum was in Europe. He then proceeded to say that it was the meanest and most ill-contrived house he ever saw. It will cost old Barnum a mint of money and not be worth two cents after it is finished, he added. I suppose old Barnum don't pay very punctually, I remarked. Oh, yes, he pays punctually every Saturday night. There's no trouble about that. He has made half a million by exhibiting a little boy whom he took from Bridgeport, and whom we never considered any great shakes till Barnum took him and trained him. Soon afterwards, one of the passengers told him who I was, whereupon he secreted himself, and was not seen again while I remained on the boat. On another occasion, I went to Boston by the Fall River route. Arriving before sunrise, I found but one carriage at the depot. 
I immediately engaged it, and giving the driver the check for my baggage, told him to take me directly to the Revere House, as I was in great haste, and enjoyed him to take in no other passengers, and I would pay his demands. He promised compliance with my wishes, but soon afterwards appeared with a gentleman, two ladies, and several children, whom he crowded into the carriage with me, and placing their trunks on the baggage rack, started off. I thought there was no use grumbling, and consoled myself with the reflection that the Revere House was not far away. He drove up one street and down another for what seemed to me a very long time, but I was wedged in so closely that I could not see what route he was taking. After half an hour's drive he halted, and I found we were at the Lowell Railway Depot. Here my fellow passengers alighted, and after a long delay the driver delivered their baggage, received his fare, and was about closing the carriage door preparatory to starting again. I was so thoroughly vexed at the shameful manner in which he had treated me that I remarked, Perhaps you had better wait till the Lowell train arrives. You may possibly get another load of passengers. Of course, my convenience is of no consequence. I suppose if you land me at the Revere House any time this week, it will be as much as I have a right to expect. I beg your pardon, he replied, but that was Barnum and his family. He was very anxious to get here in time for the first train, so I stuck him for two dollars, and now I'll carry you to the Revere House free. What Barnum is it? I asked. The museum and Jenny Lynn man, he replied, the compliment and the shave both having been intended for me. I was, of course, mollified and replied, You are mistaken, my friend. I am Barnum. Cochi was thunderstruck and offered all sorts of apologies. A friend at the other depot told me that I had Mr. Barnum on board, said he, and I really suppose he meant the other man. When I came to notice you, I perceived my mistake, but I hope you will forgive me. I have carried you frequently before, and hope you will give me your custom while you are in Boston. I never will make such a mistake again. I had to be satisfied. End of chapter 24, part 1. Recording by Gary B. Clayton.